Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Mark T. Mitchell has been with us before. He is a dean and professor of government at Patrick Henry College. His writings include Power and Purity, the Unholy Marriage that Spawned America's Social Justice Warriors. I believe we covered that book uh, uh, last year. His new book is Plutocratic Socialism, the Future of Private Property and the Fate of the Middle Class. Our topic today, welcome Dean Mitchell. Thank you, Mark. Good to <laughs> first, be here. First, first, first of all, Mark, your title is wrong because uh, plutocratic socialism, no, socialism is all about equality and sharing, correct? Yeah, you would think so, wouldn't you? Um, that just doesn't seem to be the, the case. Um, historically, um, we see various socialist movements, but um, as Orwell so astutely pointed out, right, that uh, it always is the case that that some animals seem to be more equal than others. And, and I think there is a kind of inner psychology at work in, in socialist movements that, uh, that just doesn't allow for the, the, the ultimate transition to the, that splendid condition of equality ever to be achieved. And, and I think this, this title, I'm trying to essentially coin a term that describes the, the actual uh, workings here, is is suggesting that that socialist movements um, are always accompanied by a kind of plutocratic class that simply doesn't let go of its of its power, its wealth, and its prestige. You, you know, yeah, you said there's that conversion moment that that's supposed yeah. to happen, the transformation where we yeah. go, okay, we, we have to have people seize control of yeah. things. We we've, we've got to pull back from you know private property and market oriented mechanisms and we, we've got to reorganize them, which means we have to have reorganizers. Yeah. But somehow, yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, life is kind of good when you're <laughs> when you're in that position. And it's sort of human nature not to give. And I think that's what Orwell, right? What, what yeah. Orwell really got down to very, very nicely in, in his writings, because he saw it at work, right? Quite he right. The, in process. These revolutions always get stuck in a transitional phase. Um, and, and, and they never get beyond that except theoretically. And I think you're exactly right to put your finger on human nature. Um, it's just not part of human nature to relinquish power, wealth, prestige, uh, in, in the name of some kind of abstract notion of equality. It just doesn't happen. In the book, to, to, to turn out, you, you say in the beginning that the founders, you know, they, they have their constitutional principles they yeah. have their political philosophy. But what was striking, and I think what is important about your book, is the role of the middle class yeah. in their thinking. They presumed 
a middle class of property owners that would provide ballast, that's your word, yeah. or constitutional government for, for all yeah. the high ideals, you know, the, the principles laid out in the Declaration and then in the Constitution. You need, you, you need to have a certain class group, property owners, very important. Yeah. We'll get into that. But why is this group so important? I mean, that, that's a very big question, but, but take your time. Yeah, well, um, it's it's vital. It's really indispensable to our constitutional republic. Um, here's just here, here's a here's a quote from uh, Wilhelm Rupke, the Swiss economist, uh, sort of framing this this concern. He said that it was Jefferson's nightmare that the peasants and workers who comprised the population of the United States of America at the end of the 18th century would become changed one day into a propertyless and nomadic proletariat on the one hand and a capitalist plutocracy on the other. This nightmare has come true within three generations. Hmm. What the founders understood is that power and property go together, that the class that controls the property and controls a critical mass of, of productive property is in fact the class that will uh, shape the, the mores, to use a Tocquevillian term, will, will control the direction of, of a nation. And if you have an evacuation of the middle class and exchange that for a kind of a strengthening of a plutocratic class, a wealthy class that sees themselves as morally superior and as a consequence exempt from law, from custom, that uh, the rest of the, the people are subjected to, and at the other end, a kind of propertyless, nomadic, insecure and anxious class, you've got a very toxic situation. The plutocrats don't want to lose their power, but in a democratic age, they have to create the, the sense that they have, well, they have to morally validate themselves. The only way they can do that is by pretending that they are dishing out goodies um, and supporting the, the uh, proletarian class. So they, the, the conditions for a kind of expanding, self-righteous uh, welfare state are, are constructed and really emerge with the um, evacuation of the middle class. And I would suggest that a, a significant component of our contemporary uh, social strife and division is really turning on this, this two different visions for what America was and should be. Should we be a, a, class, a middle class commercial republic where power is, 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 is decentralized, controlled by the people who control capital, who control property, or should it be concentrated and doled out by a self-righteous elite who is pretending at least to care for uh, the mass of propertyless individuals who are increasingly feeling insecure by their their the fact that they are bereft of property, which means they have no ability or a decreased ability to care for themselves and to care for their communities. And just recently, we can see the uh, the COVID crisis, the language of climate crisis, race conflict. All of these crises serve to heighten anxiety and strengthen the class that says, well, we need to have more power central, more central power, so that we can resolve these crises and, and uh, care for the people. And this is exactly contrary to how the founders of our nation 
conceived of property allocation. They saw independent families and communities, strong churches that could in their communities care for themselves because the more communities can care for themselves, this is again a Tocquevillian point that, that is something's reiterated by the founding, uh, founders as well. The more communities can care for themselves, the less they need the state, the less yeah. they need a caring class that will reach out and, and, and with promises to alleviate the anxiety that is increasingly being felt. You know, as you're talking about the, the plutocratic class and, and the welfare uh, uh, state, how the, the plutocrats really love the welfare state. You know, I remember in the 80s uh, and then into the 90s when a lot of the debates over welfare uh, were taking place. And the line was that the, those rich guys, they those rich Republicans, they, they don't care about poor people. Mm. Uh, they just rather soon see them starve. And they're all against those welfare yeah. Programs, but now we we have the plutocrat. No, they love yeah. the welfare programs because well, because it nourishes the the dependency, yes. it, it it sustains the the status quo. I mean, were 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 we wrong to see the eighties? I don't know what you'd call them. The 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 big free market capitalist uh, success stories as really being anti welfare. I mean, I don't, I don't know. This, this, really, this really doesn't come into your book. It, 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 yeah. It's off, a little off topic. But just when you were talking, I, I was just remembering the old anti-welfare discourse. Yeah, it uh, was, I, I think it was, it, was, it was always a kind of a, a red herring. Something that I think we need to keep in mind. This is something that Robert Nisbet noticed in the mid-20th century and others. That big government and big business need each other. They grow up together, and the the uh, the, the dynamics that that uh, that foster the concentration of wealth also con- uh, foster the concentration of political power, and so I think one of the things that that people on the right sometimes are accused of of being suspicious of big government, but having no- nothing to say about concentrations of economic wealth. Um, I think that's that's not the whole story. And uh, and you see sort of the the inverse um, on on the left a, a concern with 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 the uh, concentrations of wealth, but a, a perfect willingness to countenance uh, almost infinite concentration of political power. Power hmm. is 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 a dangerous thing. It's necessary. Every political entity has to have and have some concentration of power. But Madison says, and I think it's a it's it's a profoundly insightful. A political uh, truth that power is of an encroaching nature. That's Federalist forty-eight, and and it's not just political power. Power tends to to concentrate. It's the natural tendency of power is to concentrate and expand, whether it's political power or economic power. And what the American founders understood is we we need enough power in order to defend ourselves, in order to have a coherent nation, but we somehow need to create. Uh, uh, barriers to the expansion of power so that it won't flip over into some tyrannical kind of, of regime. And, and their emphasis was, was on separation of powers politically. But they were also dealing at a time when property was, was radically diffuse. 
property owners, small small farmers, small businessmen. This was this was the the typical kind of citizen that Rupke uh, mentioned in 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 the quote that I that I uh, read a couple minutes ago, and and the Tocqueville notes when Tocqueville visits America in 1831, he says something that's remarkable. He says, "In America, there are no proletarians." There's no proletarian class. And he understood something profound here. A, a proletarian class, if it, if it is, is large enough, will transform a democracy. Because if, if properless, insecure people have the franchise, they have every incentive to use the vote to reallocate wealth and resources to themselves at no cost to themselves because they have no resources. Hmm. And, and for Tocqueville, the, the key for a successful, vibrant uh, commercial republic that he saw in America was a vibrant, successful, powerful middle class. That, that He says there's the, the, a middle class, when, when they're in charge, will be, will be almost um, pathologically allergic to large taxes. To a large government, he says nothing upsets a small fortune more than a tax, and so people who possess enough wealth, enough capital, to be independent, to provide provide for themselves, to provide for their neighbors, is the best circumstance to prevent the expansion of political power. Tocqueville saw that. That's why he emphasizes the secondary associations. Thought those are just crucial because secondary associations that care for each other and property makes that possible are going to be the best barrier against the expansion of state power and the, the, the development eventually of this, this uh, soft totalitarianism that he, that he describes at the end of his book. Yeah. You cite polls on attitudes towards socialism, yeah. how has socialism in recent years become once more an attractive system to so many Americans? Yeah, it's it's a great question, kind of a sad one, isn't it? Um, it it's almost as if we're condemned to um, to relive the trajectory of the 20th century because we simply have forgotten it. But I think part of the problem is a almost a capture of of markets and market systems and what we call free market capitalism by a kind of corporatized uh, uh, state-influenced uh, system. It's interesting that, that Charles Koch, that uh, Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, so people both the left and the right, um, say yeah, the system is, is kind of rigged. It, there's, there's something wrong here. And it's and, and it and it should be a clue, and we see how much money um, corporations put into uh, lobbying Congress, for instance, paying lobbyists. Why are they doing this? It's not it's not to to free the market. It's not to uh, to to break down barriers to to competition. It's actually to create barriers to competition, barriers to entry through regulatory capture and all the rest. And so. Um, what many people are seeing as a problem with capitalism is actually a false vision of capitalism that then produces a kind of impulse to come up with a false solution, which is socialism. And uh, both are deadly. And both are hostile to a vibrant, strong middle class. Mm -hmm. 
what does socialism mean to these people? Yeah. What do they think it means? Yeah, it's 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 not uh, a kind of technical term that a, uh, a political philosopher would employ. I don't think it means um, something other than what they perceive as capitalism. Um, the the race guru Ibram X Kendi uh, puts it in very uh, sort of simple terms, simplistic terms. He says capitalism is essentially racist, and racism is essentially capitalist. So if you're an anti-racist, you have to be anti-capitalist. What's the alternative? Well, it's the the, the nearest word that seems to be um, plausible is socialism, which must mean. Um, that we eliminate private property, that we that we uh, uh, come up with some kind of sharing society, one where uh, goods and services are allocated by an all caring state that has been um, that has been uh, that has been relieved of the burden of patriarchy and racism. And all of the things that that are sort of lumped into this this catch-all condemnation that is capitalism. It's 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 sort of the guilty phrase, guilty term that you can lump anything into. So we need to get away from that. And 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 once we do that, whatever the alternative is, it's not going to be capitalism, and it's going to be good. So don't worry, Mark. Everything will be fine. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. <laughs> Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> so uh, uh, you do go back in, in history a little bit. You look at 20th century Republicans sure. who rightly objected to big government, but they made, you, you said they made a bit of mistake yeah. in that they left big business yeah. Alone. Uh, what was the mistake there? Well, I mean, the mistake you implied, you implied a little bit already, but what, what what more can we say here? I think the mistake is not taking seriously the political danger of of concentrations of power, regardless of the kind of power, economic power, political mm-hmm. power. Those are dangerous. And the fact is, historically, they grow up together. They work in tandem and increasingly become difficult to, uh, to distinguish. I mean, take, for example, the, the, uh, the annual meeting of plutocrats at Davos uh, in Switzerland, right? They, they, they fly their private jets there. John Kerry, you know, member of the, of the administration, and then, and then other corporate leaders, non-government corporate leaders, they, they fly private jets there where they hear lectures and they lecture each other and, and ultimately they lecture us about the, the dangers of climate change and the need to reduce your carbon footprint. And, and these people uh, are seemingly completely without any sense of, of irony or, or self-reflection. Uh, their, their egos, and I think maybe this is just a way to think about 
uh, the plutocrats today, their egos are always significantly larger than their carbon footprint. They can go anywhere, do whatever, because of the good that they will ultimately do, because that they are morally superior and therefore exempt from the kind of prohibitions that they want to foist upon the rest of us, all in the name of a future that they will control and create and that we will suffer. Hmm. Why, even farther back in history, why is the Magna Carta yeah. so important to the American way? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a good um, uh, sort of stopping point or starting point, I suppose. Uh, but the Magna Carta itself claims to be um, uh, laying out nothing new. It's, it, it, it appeals to ancient principles. And one of the ancient principles uh, that, that is reiterated in Magna Carta is that, that taxation and representation have to go hand in hand. You, a, a free people can't be taxed without their consent. And this just you can just trace this through English history and so much of the conflicts in English history uh, turn on this very principle. And then certainly in the uh, uh, colonial period in America and up to the revolution, that this was a key thing. That, that uh, property owners have to be self-governing. And no one is denying that the, the need for uh, taxes in order to keep a government running and so on. But the property owners need to be the ones that are deciding what the tax is. And without that consent, and this is a, an interesting refrain that just goes throughout so many of the political sermons and pamphlets of the American Revolutionary Period, is that if a king or a nation can take one penny of our property without our consent. We are effectively nothing more than slaves because if our consent doesn't matter with the taking of one penny, then the state or the king can, in theory, take it all. And so this connection between taxation, consent, and slavery is an interesting connection that is just reiterated over and over again. In your chapter on private property, you, you turn to the Bible. How mm. does private property come up in, in Genesis and other books? Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that, uh, that, that in, in uh, the Genesis account, God creates uh, uh, the, the man and the woman and then and says, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, have dominion over it. And, and I think that, that so-called dominion mandate is really a crucial notion that... that uh, um, we are, as human beings, tasked with caring for the creation, caring for things other than ourselves. And, I, and, and we need to be very careful to uh, distinguish between dominion and domination. Uh, we're not tasked with uh, dominating in a, a sort of harsh adversarial way. But the context of that story is significant. They're placed in a garden. <clears throat> and anybody who knows anything about gardening knows that you don't grow a tomato by dominating the tomato plant. You have to work with it. You have to love it, first of all, and care for it, understand its, its essence and, uh, and, and what it needs. And you give it what it needs and provide for it so that it in turn can become what it was intended to be. And so there's a kind of caretaking um, uh, aspect that is unavoidably right at the center of of this story, and I think that extends out to to ownership um, and 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 uh, uh, stewardship of our belongings. I think one of the 
ways that we've gone wrong is to think of ownership in absolute terms. That what I own, I can do anything with that I want. And yeah. nobody can tell me anything, uh, you know, to the contrary. And yeah. I think that, pardon? Yeah. Yeah, well, right. And that extends in our day, I think, to, to things like um, bodies. It's my body. I can do anything I want with it. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, you see how that motivates the abortion debate. It certainly motivates uh, the sexual uh, orientation debates, and it ultimately orients the transgender debate, and it's increasingly going to be a central feature in the transhumanist debate. It's, yeah. there, there is a, a kind of continuous logic there that is only diverted, or, or there's an alternative, if we, instead of thinking in absolute terms of ownership, think of ourselves as stewards, caretakers, who have been entrusted to care for what we've been given so that we can improve it, if possible, and pass it on to future generations. Why did the founders eliminate primogeniture? Yeah, well, it, it's, it's not a matter of elimination, I think, as much as they just never adopted it. There was never a kind of a, a significant and, and widespread primogeniture in, in the uh, colonies. Um, I suspect some of it had to do with uh, many of the, the individuals who were originally coming over um, uh, to the colonies, immigrating from Europe, were not the firstborn. Um, right. they, they sort of understood how, what, the, what the, uh, the, the short end of the stick looked like. And, and there was a kind of, of uh, equality. And also, I think there's just the, the, the vast space, uh, the vast tracts of land in America suggested that um, anyone could own property. You simply had to, to uh, have the initiative and the energy to go in, in you know, a, another mile into the wilderness and clear out a space and it was yours. And so I think the geography uh, had something to do with this. And I also think there's some sociological reasons, um, just given who came and why. You know, people, young people, we talk about looking at their futures and not having the optimism yeah. that former Americans used to have yeah. about, you know, my life can be a little better than my, my grandparents. Yeah lives were. And you refer to, quote, a prevailing sense of insecurity yeah. and general angst yeah. in America today. Yeah. What, what is going on with that? Well, there's a lot of things um, that are contributing to that. Um, but I think one, and, and including things like the breakdown of family, breakdown of meaningful communities, uh, meaningful associational life. You know, Robert Putnam writes about this um, uh, significantly, but so too does does uh, even Tocqueville imagines what is necessary for a kind of secure community? What we have, I think, is this growing sense of anxiety, and it's anxiety that's that one writer calls free-floating anxiety. It's not it's not anchored in anything. It's just it's just a sense of of dread or fear. And when you have a a kind of persistent free-floating anxiety, I think it's contributed to and, and really exacerbated by social media. You know, TikTok and Facebook generation seems to be the most anxious group of students I've ever encountered. Hmm. And and they 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 want, and human beings naturally want to be rescued from anxiety. And when you have this persistent sense 
that is that is exacerbated um, by things like the COVID crisis, things like the language of climate apocalypse. That why why can I even imagine? How can I even imagine having children? Because their lives are going to be doomed to to sort of a a, a slow conflagration that will eventually consume everything. Um, the the uh, the well recently inflation that seems just to be out of control, uh, and and no serious leadership that looks like on the horizon that looks like capable of sort of bring bring these things to to bay. Um, this sets up a condition that is perfectly suited for the expansion of a of a powerful state that promises the political and economic resources that will be brought to bear to eliminate our anxiety they can hold out the promise never to be fulfilled and and i don't think they want it to be fulfilled because as soon as people are secure they don't need the state. And yeah. so there's a kind of inner dynamic here of, of needing ongoing crises. If one is resolved, if one goes away, we need something else. If COVID goes away, we need monkeypox. If, 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 if somehow we solve the climate thing, there'll be something else. Because of the, of the need for crisis to, to legitimate the concentration of power for the promise of alleviating the anxiety that is often created by those who are in power. Right. You note that socialists and plutocrats tend to speak more of wealth yeah. than of property. Yeah. Uh, why is that? I think because abstract wealth, um, at the end of the day, uh, is less dangerous to the plutocrats than concrete property held by middle-class citizens. And wealth, mm. at the end of the day, is a kind of abstraction. You saw, say, in 2008, the, the stock market uh, you know, crash. There's, there's billions of dollars disappear immediately, just with a snap of a finger, with a, with a blip of a screen. What does it mean when wealth is nothing more concrete than that which can disappear at the snap of fingers? Mm. That's very different than, than owning your, the, the bricks and mortar of your own business, Owning a, a a piece of land upon which you can produce your own food, uh, owning the, the tools of your own trade, owning and possessing a skill that can actually provide for your family <clears throat> and for your neighbors. These are the kind of things that independent citizens have. And when independent citizens um, exist in a critical mass, they vote differently. The vote comes out differently and the state just isn't needed. The book is Plutocratic Socialism, The Future of Private Property and the Fate of the Middle Class. Professor Mitchell, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.